we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatments of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio, CFRO, on unceded Coast Salish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, July the 24th, 2020. I am your host, April Lafleur, and I am joined here today by our co-host, Sinead Sanders. Hello. Welcome to the show. I haven't talked to you for so long. It's so lovely to have you back. Well, Sinead, the heat and the sun have finally shown themselves here in Vancouver in the past few weeks. There's a rumor out these days. People are saying that summer has arrived. But you know what? It's actually true. It has. So it's July. We finally have a summer. It's a time to celebrate with safe social distancing. It's barbecue season and some of the most summery barbecue items I can think of include of an array of tasty vegan meats such as the British Bangers sausages from our local company, the Very Good Butchers, and my favorite Italian big sausages from the Tofurky Company of which I have been a longtime patron and consumer myself. What I wanted to present for a theme for today's show is to celebrate and hear the business success stories and advice from a few of these plant-based meat makers. For our first interview, we'll be speaking with James Davison and Mitchell Scott, and it was a pleasure to meet them for the very first time this week. They are the duo behind the Very Good Butchers, and they butcher beans instead of animals. This innovative company is only three years old and based in downtown Victoria, B.C., where they have a brick-and-mortar butcher shop, as well as a cafe of delightful vegan comfort foods. You can go to their shop and order slices of various types of meat, just like you would at a traditional animal flesh butcher. But the main difference is that no animals are being harmed in this new cultural practice and it's also a way to live much more lightly on the earth without giving up on the tastes, textures, and traditions of meat. For our feature interview today, we have on Seth Tibbet, who has been in the plant-based meat-making business for 40 years now, and he actually pioneered the way for plant-based meat companies to come. I feel it's because of his decades of hard work at the beginning and plowing through all the challenges that came with selling veggie meat in a meat-eating society that has now exploded the market for a demand in vegan meats. If you've been a vegan or vegetarian for a while, you'll probably know well the varieties of sausages, roast, deli slices, seasoned chicken strips, and more that Seth sells here in Canada, and many more varieties across the world in over six continents. Seth has just recently published a life business memoir called In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool. In this interview with Seth, he'll tell us about his bootstrapping days of living penny to penny, and 
until his business finally made a million dollars in 1998 and turned a profit. It is now a multi-million dollar company and continues to innovate and grow. That interview is coming up in 27 minutes, so please stay tuned. So Sinead, I think you love vegan meats as much as I do from all these years knowing you. I understand you even discovered a new plant-based meat this week that actually simulates the taste of sea creatures. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was in the East End Food Co-op on Commercial Drive, and there was this new product on sale from a company called Modern Meat. And Modern Meat is based here in Vancouver, and uh, and yeah, the <laughs> no actual animal flesh involved. They have a line of burgers out with onion relish to go with it and burger sauce to go with it as well. And then the one that I decided to try, they have these crab cakes and this remoulade sauce to go with them and they are very tasty i can tell you i never actually ate crab cakes before yeah i don't know how much they taste like crabs but these things are delicious and highly recommended the main ingredient is celery root actually and then there's chickpea flour and pea protein and then all these vegetables and breadcrumbs just really decadent and delicious and imagine that you can use plants that you would never think of before to actually simulate the taste of flesh. It's amazing. Speaking of seafood, uh, we're just going to quickly just run through some of our favorite products because we only have very limited time. Gardein sells these fishlet fillets that I know you love, Sinead. I have never liked seafood myself, but I can tell you that the meat eaters I have fed it to, they actually think it's fish. So Sinead, can you just quickly list a couple of your other favorite garden we have we have the same favorites <laughs> yes yes the crispy tenders the crispy tenders my favorite yeah. are the chipotle lime crispy tenders and you just throw them yeah. in the oven and comfort food yum and they're like they're like chicken fingers. You can buy the crispy seven grain tenders at Costco for even a better price. Very quickly as well, we wanted to do a shout out to Plant Base Natural Food and Products. They sell our favorite pepper noni. And also our favorite, bacon. And Sinead really likes their Texas barbecue ribs. And one quick shout out also to Happy Veggie World. They're a local Chinese vegan meat manufacturing company. So if you're not in Vancouver, you know, if you're in a city where where there's Chinese restaurants, vegetarian restaurants, very popular, they make their own meats. Well, we love the chicken drumsticks. If you've ever had those in your town and you can buy them at Vegan Supply in Vancouver, as well as some others, other products products that you won't find anywhere else. Visit our website at animalvoices.org as we have lots more vegan meat alternative brands there that we love and recommendations listed. You know, there's so many plant-based meats these days, so many dozens, if not hundreds of different varieties and flavors. You've got to check them out. They are doing better for the planet, your health, and the animals. In light of the pandemic the world is experiencing now, there was an article published that stated that the sales of vegan meats in the three months after March this year had actually grown by 148%. Did you know that, Sinead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading about that the other day. 
Yeah, and we've posted that on our Facebook page if you want to learn more. We'll be speaking more about this with the Very Good Butchers as well, so tune in to find out why that has been. But that article really has had some other important notes in it. One of the people quoted was saying, and this is true, factory farming has the potential to incite future pandemics, so perhaps that's one reason why people have been cutting down their meat consumption and instead buying brands like the Very Good Butcher and Tofurky and Gardein and all that. And it is actually true that factory farming has incited pandemics. We have H1N1 from pigs in factory farms. We have the avian flu from chickens who are kept in tens of thousands so tightly in factory farms. And I've been into a factory hog farm myself and those animals are so packed in. They're miserable. They're not being tended to properly like they're not kept clean they're not kept safe from infections we saw pigs there that had just just like untreated infections that were just all over like all over their bodies basically from the sores from from being confined in these iron enclosures for gestation and the places reek like urine and and poo it's disgusting so with people being more educated these days i think people might be starting to open their eyes and hopefully have been listening to a radio show to realize that factory farming has the potential to incite future pandemics Mm -hmm. now yeah did you want to say anything about that Sinead? Yeah, there was a report released earlier this week from an organization called ProVeg, and they found that uh, it was a very extensive report that concluded that consuming animals and seeking animal protein is one of the riskiest behaviors as for humanity as far as future pandemics and also just the survival of humanity in general on this planet. And that was in alignment with a report from the United Nations just before that. So within the past couple of weeks, there have been two big reports released expressing concern over the consumption of animals and the impact that'll have on our future as far as pandemics go and as well as the climate crisis. I'm so glad that the mainstream world is finally getting this. And if people aren't a regular listener of Animal Voices, we produced a show in April and it's all about zoonotic diseases. If you can find that on our Apple Podcasts or Google Play or just go to animalvoices.org and look up zoonotic diseases. And that show, we basically had an expert on public health and she she explained how this all works and how it is that confinement of animals like this who are already have a compromised immune system, they're already getting sick, they are going to get viruses that can then be passed on to humanity, which is now happened. And, uh, you know, here we are. How many months later? Still no better, really. It's it's basically something that could have been avoided if people had the knowledge. So in the Forbes article, it stated that the United States has one of the highest rates of meat consumption per capita in the world. That's no news, I'm sure. But red meat production dropped by 18% between May 2019 and May 2020, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Overall, U.S. meat sales are expected to drop by more than $20 billion before the end of 2020. 
2020, and per capita meat consumption is expected to fall globally this year by nearly 3%, according to a June Food Outlook from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And that's the biggest decline since at least 2000. From what I learned from businessman Seth Tibbet this week is that 3% is actually a whole lot in the food industry. So that's that's definitely something to consider. What do you think of that, Sinead? Like just knowing that we have these statistics that are rapidly just happening just this year, showing that meat consumption is is just dropping. I think it's great. It's one of the, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to see some bright sides to a difficult situation. And this pandemic yeah. seems, to, uh, seems to be opening the eyes of a lot of people as far as the impact that our food choices are not actually personal choices. They have a larger impact. And then we have more people learning through documentaries like The Game Changers, which was has been big in the past mm-hmm. uh, in the past number of months. And so people are learning more. They're seeing more. It's being more difficult to ignore the consequences. And as listeners will learn throughout this show, there are so many options now, so many delicious things to eat that are not animal flesh that uh, can do us all a whole lot better. For sure. And that's what this show is all about today. So we hope you will stay tuned. It's also very interesting if you you just don't care about vegan meats. But if you're a person who's an entrepreneur of any type, you have to listen to this show. These are great success stories. They are both very different stories in their own, but they both have the common theme of meeting the demand of plant-based meats these days. All right, and now for some events. We have not one, but two big vegan events happening online this Saturday. Saturday, July the 25th, the Vancouver Vegan Festival, the virtual edition. So the launch of uh, Vancouver Vegan Festival 2019 attracted an estimated 10,000 people to Creekside Park which was great, but obviously we can't be doing that in uh, in 2020. So the 2020 festival is going to be taking place all on Instagram. There will be DJ dance parties, inspiring speakers, food demos, interviews, yoga flows, and more, including over $3,000 in vegan food and product giveaways. So again, that is this Saturday, July the 25th. Live on Instagram at Vancouver Vegan Festival, starting at 10 a.m. all the way until 10 p.m. And you can find more info on that at VancouverVeganFestival.com. And uh, then on the same day is the National Afro Vegan Conference, which is put on by the Afro Vegan Society based in Baltimore. So this is another online event featuring all black speakers plant-based chefs, medical professionals who promote plant-based eating and and vegan living as a solution to many of the global challenges we currently face. So there will be cooking demos, education sessions, panel discussions, and more to make veganism affordable, relatable, and accessible. So that sounds like a really great event as well. Also 10 a.m. this Saturday online. You can register for free at afroveganSociety.org and then just have access to all these different videos and you can 
flip back and forth between the Vancouver Vegan Festival and the Afro Vegan Festival. <laughs> Lots of stuff out there. Yeah, so while most in-person events are being cancelled or are not happening, it's good to know that we have these online events that are being organized that everyone can attend. Mm-hmm. If you have any animal-related events that you'd like us to announce on the show, you can send us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. For our first interview today, we have local vegan entrepreneurs James Davison and Mitchell Scott on the show. They each make up half of a young company called The Very Good Butchers, which is based in our province's capital of Victoria, B.C. These two are not your typical animal flesh butchers, however. They are actually butchers of beans. The Very Good Butchers are an emerging plant-based food technology company that designs, develops, produces, distributes, and sells a variety of plant-based meat and other food alternatives. Their mission is to employ plant-based food technology to create products that are delicious while maintaining a wholesome nutritional profile. The Very Good Butchers have both a popular butcher shop and cafe in downtown Victoria. Their organic products are available in hundreds of stores in both BC and Alberta, and they have plans to expand coast to coast soon, and you can also order meat boxes to be shipped anywhere in Canada. James and Mitchell are here today to share more about their growing company, the concept of owning a vegan butchery, and how their plant-based meats are not only delicious, nutritious, but also a gateway to saving animals and the planet. Hello, James and Mitchell, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Alison, thanks for having us. It's great to have you both here and to finally meet you both. I can see you both on video right now. I have tried some of your meat products being here in Vancouver. I, the British Bangers, really good. Those are the ones I remember. I must say they are very delicious and I can see why your company, The Very Good Butchers, is expanding wildly as a child just born three years ago. Thanks for coming on the show today to tell us about it and to hopefully inspire other vegan food entrepreneurs who also wish to follow their passions in providing plant-based foods for the world. But first, let's start by hearing a bit about your backgrounds with regards to both veganism and skill sets that you brought to become bean butchers. James, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. So I'll start off guessing my skill set. So I was um, classically trained kind of French cuisine chef for 13 to 14 years, mostly working in London, and then um, moved to Vancouver, uh, where I started working in a vegetarian restaurant. And there were a lot of vegetarians and vegans there. Um, and I wasn't really kind of too aware of, of any of that. I'd really just kind of ended up in this in vegetarian restaurant kind of accent. The food just looked great. Um, and I thought it'd be an interesting challenge. Uh, but yeah, so while I was there, um, met a couple of people that were kind of interested in teaching me about kind of veganism and, um, and, and what it was all about. So I read a couple of books. I read uh, Eating Animals. Um, great book. It's a, well, yeah, it's 
horrible book, but it's very great for education. And then a couple of documentaries. So I watched Cowspiracy and I think Earthlings was one of them, which was, again, really, really difficult to watch. Well, that's a vegan maker. That is a vegan maker right there, absolutely. Yeah. If you can watch that and still eat animals, then I don't know, there's something missing. Yeah, so then um, moved to Demon Islands, where I didn't have a lot of vegan options to eat. Um, kind of wasn't really that impressed with what was on the supermarket shelves. And then with my chef background, I kind of figured that maybe I could make something better than what was out there. So yeah, I, guess I gave it a try. Great. And what about you, Mitchell? You came into the story by trying some of James's products, right? And what is your background with veganism yeah. as well? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was that summer, summer of 2016. I was at a family barbecue uh, and I tried this veggie burger and I was like, wow, that's a really good veggie burger. So I'd actually grown up vegetarian and had a lot of, you know, not so great veggie burgers or products over the years. And I, I tried this burger uh, and I was just blown away at how good it was. Uh, and it turned out that my sister's husband's sister's husband had made these burgers. So that's this guy here. So there's a tenuous family connection there. So he'd been making these products and selling them at the local farmer's market that summer and selling out every weekend and people were really just loving them. So he actually made the, the British bangers uh, and then the very good burger were the first two products he made. So I tried them. I was blown away by how good they were. My background was kind of biz dev marketing. I'd been working remotely for a Japanese company in software and games for about five years. And I was kind of ready for to do something different, you know, looking for something else to get involved in. And then I tasted these great burgers and got to chatting and we decided to kind of team up and, and see where we could take this. And that's I really, that's how I got started. And then, you know, since then, it's been a journey over the past over three and a half, four years. Hmm. Being that you were raised vegetarian, this is something that we don't often see here on Animal Voices, like adults who were raised as vegetarians. I would love to sort of just get your insights about how it is that you came to like how, how how did you think about animals being that most people think of them as food but yeah. you didn't and then and then going along to your vegan journey as well yeah well absolutely yeah, i can, can get into that so i mean for me it was just never normal i guess to to eat animals right so grew up vegetarian but i don't, I don't think we had a lot of education from my parents in, in regards to why it was just the normal thing was for us to not eat animals um, and yes, I'm sure they tried to educate us a little bit, like uh, in terms of the environment, in terms of animal cruelty, but it was never like they were trying to to fight this perception that we had that animals was food and break that and, and turn us into vegan because we were already, you know, vegetarian. So then in, in regards to becoming vegan, I think I, kind of around the time I was getting involved with the Very Good Butchers or shortly after, I just started looking into it more and, and learning a bit more about all the cruelty inherent in the dairy industry. Whereas before I just hadn't really made that connection you know, that in these industries, you know, the dairy industry, the egg industry, all this stuff, there's all this bad stuff going on, which is equally bad as, you know, factory farming. So that, so once I made that connection, I, I, I went vegan. And I, I think the main reason just, I never, I never really felt like I was missing out on anything. And especially once like I had these products, there's just so many good alternatives out there, especially now the past few years. And so when I went vegan, I started looking for a plant-based milk and I found this, like the ripple, the, the pea, the pea milk. I was like, wow. You found the most decadent plant milk out there. Yeah, and I was like, wow, this is better than chocolate milk. This stuff's amazing. And like got into some of the plant-based cheeses because that had been, I'd like, love crackers and cheese growing up, right? So I tried some of the plant-based cheeses and I was, you know, pretty impressed with them. And I was like, wow, you know, there's really no need for me to, to, to you know, consume, you know, dairy or any of these other products. So for me, it wasn't really a, a, a super hard switch. Well, to go vegetarian to vegan, yeah. 
Awesome. So as I understand your company, The Very Good Butchers, it was originated three years ago on Vancouver Island, as you said. Now, I'm wondering if you can tell us how that all started and what inspired you to open a vegan butcher shop in Victoria three years ago and what the mission of your company entails. So as I mentioned, so James was at, was at the farmer's market. So that's where he started the Very Good Butchers there. So it was just like a farmer's market stand. And then once we teamed up, we decided to to do an event together. So we found the Victoria Public Market and Victoria was doing a Christmas market. So we basically brought some coolers up, set up there for two days, similar farmer's market set up, but an, an indoor market. And once again, we had a great response. We posted on a legal, local vegans Facebook group, you know, had a few hundred people show up and kind of sold out over those two days. And while we were there, we noticed they had a full-time retail space available. And the market manager was like, oh, you guys are popular. You know, you should you should look, look at this. So we kind of just dove right into it. And about two months later, we opened the first vegan butcher shop on the West Coast of Canada. Uh, we had about a thousand people show up on our opening day. And we had to shut down for a week after that just to kind of restock everything. And maybe James can get a, a bit more into the our kind of our ethos and our, our the reason he kind of started this in the first place. Yeah, so I think for me it was trying to find or have products out there that I would be really happy eating. Um, I think there was just a lot of overly processed products out there on the shelves, and I was trying to get something that I'd be really happy to feed my kids. And so that's really the ethos of the company is just to make good food. Everyone can enjoy it. It's familiar, so if you are not vegan or vegetarian, it's really approachable. Um, trying to get it as as mainstream and as as cool and accessible as possible, really. Nice. So you are effectively two of the pioneers of people who call themselves vegan butchers in the world. You believe in butchering beans and not chickens, cows, or pigs. Can you speak to us more about the concept of perhaps shifting the use of language and culture that customarily describes causing harm to animals and the planet to reclaiming the word and the act of butchery? And what kind of feedback do you get from being bean butchers as opposed to being animal butchers? Yeah, well, obviously a lot of the feedback from the vegan community is, is really positive. I think they kind of see what we're doing with the name, the very good butchers. And yeah, it's that kind of like reclaiming it. We just really want to make sure, make it feel like you're not missing out. Like if you decide that you to not eat meat, you don't have to miss out on, on anything, you know, like that's, that's really where we, where we want to be. And if, with regards to the words meat, that hasn't always meant the flesh of an animal. That has in history just meant pretty much food in general. And you still get, you know, flesh of fruit, flesh of nuts. See, I think the, issues with vernacular and calling yourself something is kind of it's it's kind of silly because language doesn't sit still and one thing that is is true today is not going to be true true tomorrow um and that's yeah that's a we really want to kind of push it to when you even think of meat you're thinking about plant-based proteins and not animal flesh yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you are sort of pushing the envelope there in terms of how we call things and do things in society. And uh, there are a handful, as far as I know, of other people who call themselves vegan butchers in the world, and they're actually doing really well for themselves and their businesses as well. So this is this is great to have you right here in Victoria, in BC. You're so local, and we appreciate that so much here in Vancouver. Now, we've been talking about your business and selling plant-based meats, but we haven't actually spoken about what these meats are yet. And I'm sure our listeners and viewers are very curious to know what is exactly is it that you sell in your butchery? Can you describe some of the meaty products that you make and how it is that you make them taste so delicious and actually taste like meat? Do a range of products from your kind of 
uh, basic burgers, um, sausages, um, and that kind of thing. And then we've developed recently steaks, ribs, pepperoni, trying to get as broad as we can. Anything that you might potentially be missing as a vegan, like as a newer vegan or a vegetarian, then we kind of have that covered for you. And then, yeah, in terms of flavor, it was just that was always kind of the easy part for me. Just having my background, creating flavor was what I'd done for a lot for a lot. Lot of years so it was really getting that texture of the meat that was challenging so currently we are using wheat protein to do that it really acts a lot like a sort of animal protein um, it has that kind of fibrous chew that really helps kind of give you that just satisfaction like that kind of satisfying burger kind of feel or sausage kind of feel yeah and then we're developing uh, a range of gluten-free products as well that should be available yeah the end of this year okay. um, so now a lot of people have been asking for them and that's kind of really blending like our whole foods ethos with a little bit more kind of food technology to get that meaty chew and be a gluten-free product are those going to contain things like beans and legumes obviously that's where we get our our major plant protein from Absolutely, yeah. So it'll be a mixture of legumes and seeds. So things like um, hemp hearts and pea and black bean and chickpeas. So a lot of whole food, plant-based proteins from a lot of different sources to make it a whole, a whole protein. Can you talk about the protein and nutritional content in your meats versus that in, in animal meats? Sure, yeah. So they're very similar. Like In fact, like our sausages, for instance, are quite a lot higher in protein than their animal meat equivalent and that's because there are more kind of protein sources and less fillers like that you'd see in a in a sausage but everything's pretty much nutritionally equivalent but then obviously a lot better for you right so mitchell maybe you can answer this one what is the kind of feedback that you get from your customers and i understand that some people come into the shop expecting to buy cuts of animal meat yeah so i think overall the feedback is is really positive i mean when we first started there was you know some people that were a little bit upset because, you know, they, they think that butchers should only be butchering animals and that there's this ancient craft and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, every now and then we do get someone coming in looking for an ox bone or a whatever. And we just kind of explain that we're a you know, plant-based butcher shop. We butcher beans, offer them some good options. And, you know, most of the time someone comes in, if they are looking for meat-based burger, they try one of our plant-based ones and they walk out super happy. You know, they've just had a delicious burger and maybe they're more open to plant-based products in the future. And that's how we see it. Like, we're not trying to trick or deceive anyone. We do clearly say we're plant-based in our signs and everything. But some people, you know, occasionally just, you know, they'll miss that piece of it. And then we're happy to, you know, give them some tasty food. Well, that's great for the people who don't read signs. I'm very glad that you do. You do have, uh, as I understand, quite a lot of omnivores who eat your meats, and that's wonderful. And, and I guess following to that question is, can you speak about, in your opinion, the scene of plant-based vegan meats at in our culture at this time in 2020 and how you feel they will continue to serve society in what seems to be an exploding market these days. I mean, I think for the past like two or three years, it's been the year of, for, you know, for vegan meats to go mainstream. Like it seems like the industry and the options have just exploded in popularity and it just seems to keep getting bigger and bigger every year. So I think we're going to, I mean, continue to see that as more people either go fully vegan or plant-based or just start incorporating plant-based proteins as a regular protein source. So, you know, mm. starting with a meatless Monday, but maybe it turns into, you know, they're eating plant-based three, four or five times a week, uh, which is awesome. So I think it's just going to continue to accelerate and grow. And as people become more open to these options and realize that, you know, you can get that same great taste experience, that same flavor uh, without any of the kind of negative things associated with, you know, traditional animal-based meat. 
Right. And I read a really interesting statistic last night. I think you both know this, that in the few months starting in March, basically when the pandemic started, there was a growth of 148% of plant-based meat sales. What do you think of that? And I'm just wondering what do you attribute that to? I think a number of factors. I think, I mean, obviously there were some some shortages and issues in the in the meat supply uh, due to kind of COVID outbreaks at factories. So less animal-based meat available, you know, maybe they're switching to a plant-based option. I think there were also concerns about the source of the, the coronavirus, it coming from a, you know, a wet meat market. I think in general, we would just kind of have reached a tipping point. You know, there's more and more celebrities, influencers, news articles, coverage is just really creating this massive kind of tipping point and people are trying the options out there. And in this day and age, you know, a lot of this stuff is really, really good. So I think it's just the result of, you know, the years and years of this slow build and then it seems to really be getting, getting some momentum. Also, too, I read that it's because a lot of people are staying at home now. So they're cooking yeah. more and they're open to trying new things. All these sourdough bread bakers coming mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Well, might as well try a, a bean sausage or a bean burger. Yeah. Now, being new at this business and into it three years, I'm wondering what the main challenges have been for you to keep it going successfully because there's so many food businesses and restaurants, like 90% of restaurants don't make it through their first year. You're not only a cafe there, but you're actually producing this new product that no no one has ever tried before. So there's that extra challenge as well as is, is getting people to love your products. Although maybe it's not a challenge because everyone just seems to be going for them really well. But what have been the main challenges in your last three years? I think the biggest challenges for us have always been uh, scaling up production. We've just always had way more demand than we could ever keep up with. Now, kind of with the IPO that we've just done, we've really kind of unlocked the potential of the company to start reaching that demand. Getting people to try the product has, has been the easy thing, and stores are really reaching out to us to, to try and get it on their shelves. So it's really just trying to make enough of it so we right. can fill the demand. So you've touched upon two exciting news points that I wanted you to comment further on, and that is that just as of June, you've opened up the selling of equity shares on the Canadian Securities Exchange as of a couple months ago. And the other one is that you have recently increased your points of distribution by 30%. That is to say your products are being introduced into more stores and you have plans to expand this distribution from coast to coast. Can you speak more on this exciting recent news? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, about a, a month or so ago, we went public on the Canadian Securities Exchange. And we did that for a few reasons. About a year before, we'd, we'd raised uh, money on a, a platform called FrontFunder. Basically, it allowed our, our customers to invest in the company and get an equity stake. So we already had a, a large shareholder base of about 250 people. And so this going public was kind of the next evolution of that, the next step. It allowed us to raise money to kind of expand our production, expand our manufacturing. Uh, and really kind of grow the company. For the past, you know, the first two and a half, three years, uh, we'd pretty much been bootstrapped. So that means, you know, we each put in a little bit of money, but we didn't have any big VC funding or partners or anything, which resulted in us having to be very lean and kind of grow slowly and organically. It was great in that it allowed us to kind of create these good products, make sure they fit, make sure people like them. But in terms of actually scaling up production and getting them out there, it was it was very challenging and difficult. So we're finally at a place now where we can really expand. So we've recently listed with a a bunch more grocery stores, most recently Thrifty Foods in about 30 different stores. So that'll be happening in the next few days. But we're in Whole Foods, Choices in Vancouver, and we're really planning to accelerate that over the next few months. We've also significantly increased our online sales. We're shipping out about, about a thousand boxes a week uh, direct to consumers. And we, we love being able to connect directly with consumers because not everyone has a, has access to a, a grocery store with you know, lots of 
good options and alternatives. And also, especially during COVID, right? You know, maybe they don't want to be out too much. So we're able to send our meats directly to, to people's doors. We've also just um, brought on like a, a 3PL. So it's like third party logistics that's going to help us with our shipping. So it's going to bring the shipping times really way down on what they, what they currently are. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to them. Cool. You alluded to your boxes and what these are. I, I've been, you know, vegetarian and vegan all of my adult life. So it seems like you offer these meat boxes, but it seems like that's something that the meat eating culture does as well. Can you talk about what are these boxes and why people yeah. would want big boxes of meat shipped to them? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we call it the monthly. There's a few different boxes, but our, our most popular one is the monthly meat club. So every month or whatever interval you want, We'll send you a box of meat. It's got about six products in it. Uh, every month it's a little bit different, but there's the core products so burgers, sausages, taco stuffer. And the idea is that it's just an easy way for you to get your, your protein source, your meats, without having to, to think too much about it. You know you're going to get this high-quality selection of meats, and you can make you know 10 or so meals out of them. There's definitely something similar in the, the animal meat-based space. There's something called Butcher Box. Uh, operates on a kind of similar model. So we're looking to do that, but for plant-based meats. And just with a focus on kind of high-quality butcher shop, style mm -hmm. artisan artisan meats organic as well we should mention right we are yeah so we're we're in the process of getting our organic certification uh currently 95 percent of our ingredients are organic uh we don't have that certification quite yet though great so i asked seth tibbet of tofurky this question and i'm going to ask you to as well can you each describe one of your favorite products and the way that you like to prepare it yeah for me i think it's the uh british bangers and I love to make bangers and mash. And what about you, Mitchell? Yeah, I like our uh, adzuki bean pepperoni. A few different ways. Most common way I do it is probably like a like a charcuterie board. So I'll get my favorite uh, stone wheat thins crackers. I'll ch chop up a bunch of the pepperoni. I'll maybe get some some cultured nut or some blue heron cheese. Uh, two local kind of wow. cheese companies. Mm -hmm. And just make a nice charcuterie board and then just eat it like that. Also really good on pizzas. I'll do a pizza sometime with our pepperoni. So also as part of your expansion of your brick and mortar stores, I understand that a very good butcher shop is coming to Vancouver. Exciting. Can you please tell us more about this venture for our eager Vancouver listeners? That would include myself. So we've signed a lease on a space in Mount Pleasant, kind of right near the Whole Foods on Camby, uh, the Big wow. Rock Brewery there. It's going to be 10,000 square feet. Uh, about 7,000 of that will be production. The rest of the idea is kind of a butcher shop, restaurant, test kitchen, R&D lab. So it'll be very similar to like a, a brew pub. Uh, so you have like your eating and drinking area. Then there'll be a big glass uh, window and you'll be able to see us making making the meat behind there. So it's kind of a, a play on the, you know, how all, you know, if slaughterhouses had had glass walls, everyone would be vegan. Yeah. So our, our meat manufacturing plant is going to have glass walls and you'll be able to see how the sausage is made. Yeah, I hope you can use that term as well, that phrase in your marketing. Mm. That would just mm. really make people think. That's amazing. I have to ask, when when do you expect that to come out? Yeah, it's been something we've been working on for, honestly, years now. And it finally is picking up steam and moving along. Uh, we're hoping for kind of April, May of uh, next year. So around 10 months or so from now. Uh, that's what we're working towards. It's a pretty big project. Yeah. I, I understand and I totally appreciate that and I will patiently wait the 10 or 11 months. <laughs> now, finally, this question is for both of you. What advice do you have for budding entrepreneurs in the plant-based food industry who want to create a product and ensure its success? What are some top tips you would have for a startup like this? I would say pick a product that has a wide audience. Don't go too niche. 
because you're going to kind of hamper your growth, I feel. Um, and then just try it and find yourself a Mitchell. They're really handy. Okay. What about you, Mitchell? What are some top tips you have? Yeah, I'd say, you know, make something that people actually want, obviously. Like, differentiate yourself. I see a lot of companies kind of just, just making, like, a spread or a something or that, like, that there's already a ton of out there and that are already generally plant-based and then trying to slap a plant-based logo on it. Like, oh, we're a, a vegan peanut butter, but, you know, 95% <laughs> of peanut butters are vegan already. I just think it's not going to have the kind of legs. And then I think the other piece would just be just, you know, be willing to kind of iterate on that. So come up with something, get it out to customers, see what they like, improve it, make it better, and just keep going until you find something that really resonates with with customers. Thanks. I just have one more question here because uh, our show is community-based. We support the Mm -hmm. community. You're part of the community, and, and so are many of the other people who we have on the show. And I wonder if you can speak on the importance of, uh, as a business, any business, supporting community as part of your business plan. And I know you do that. So could you tell our listeners a bit about how it is you do that and why you feel it's important? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few different things we do. I'll start with the kind of the, the, the two main ones. So there's a few local animal shelters here. So Rasta and a Home for Hooves. So as a business, I mean, we have a recurring donation set up to them monthly. Uh, We've also done a a number of events with them in the past. And more generally, we support a lot of different kind of silent auctions for various causes, uh, children's causes, women in need, et cetera, uh, with gift baskets, with gift cards. Uh, We think it's just super important to to give back and support and really help out, you know, people who who need the assistance. Yeah, we also put a lot of of events on for Bihar and then um, the Animal Party of uh, Canada as well, um, Jordan Reichart. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, for us, it's just been something we've kind of done since the beginning just because we, we think it's, you know, it's the right thing to do. And moving forward, we, we plan on continuing to do so. And we're looking at ways to kind of amplify that support as well. We're looking at there's something called 1% for the planet, which is basically you, you, you choose a product or a line and, and donate a portion of the, the sales of that product to various environmental causes. And we think it's also important to, to support a broad spectrum of, of causes and issues if we can i'm um, like obviously the the animal related ones are our top priority like the animal shelters events but there's you know a lot of a lot of other you know very, very worthy causes out there well thanks for doing that i'm um, just one more final thing in being that we're located in vancouver here where can we find your products currently in vancouver both stores and restaurants that you might want to mention yeah i'm gonna give a, just one quick shout out to uh vegan supply in chinatown yeah the, uh, the original spot, they've had our products for probably years now. Uh, they also probably have the widest selection. And then it just kind of depending where you are, Palm Natural Markets out in Coquitlam, Spent Grounds in Surrey is another great place to pick up our products if you're out there. Uh, we're in Choices, we're in Whole Foods. Um, there's another. There's a whole bunch more. Uh, we do have a store locator on our website, so you can go there and just find the spot closest to you. But yeah, those are a few of uh, my uh, top recommendations. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mitchell Scott and James Davison, the duo behind the Very Good Butchers based in Victoria, B.C. They are innovators meeting the growing needs of the plant-based meat industry, currently selling in over 200 stores and restaurants in Alberta and B.C. and shipping Canada-wide and soon to become available in multiple grocery stores in Canada from coast to coast. It has been a pleasure to hear your business story, your mission to feed people with delicious and familiar taste 
tasting foods and to hopefully inspire other entrepreneurial minded people who are listening to this show to dive into the plant based food industry. You can find the Very Good Butchers on social media on their fantastic website at verygoodbutchers.com. There's a lot of resources on there, as you mentioned, the store locator and recipes as well. You can also sign up on their mailing list there to find out all the updates, which I have just done. Have a lovely Victoria summer, Mitchell and James. You are lucky to be in Victoria, the best weather in Canada. I can't wait until you open a very good butchers in 10 to 11 months. I'm going to put that on my calendar in Vancouver. Be well and stay safe. Thanks, Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And now for some news. A transport truck driver has avoided criminal charges in connection with the death of animal advocate Regan Russell. Regan was run over and killed last month by a truck taking pigs to slaughter outside Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse in Burlington, Ontario. She was there as a member of the Animal Safe Movement. They were at the slaughterhouse that day to document the condition of pigs being trucked to slaughter in sweltering heat and to provide them with water. They were also there in protest of Bill 156, which passed in Ontario just two days prior to Regan's death. And this is significant because Bill 156 is an ag-gag bill, which uh, aims to cover up animal cruelty in the farming industry. And ag-gag bills interfere with the rights of citizens and journalists to protest and document animal abuse, practically makes exposing animal abuse in these settings a criminal offense. So police announced this week that they laid one provincial charge against the driver, careless driving causing death, which may sound accurate enough, but to put it into context, provincial charges are considered far less serious than criminal charges. And while police didn't lay criminal charges against this trucker, whose driving killed a human being right in front of him, they rarely extend that kind of leniency to animal advocates. Law enforcement typically offers preferential slap-on-the-wrist treatment to industries responsible for animal suffering while pursuing serious criminal prosecutions against people who expose and take action to stop animal cruelty. For instance, advocates have gathered endless footage of animals being abused in slaughterhouses, in transport, on farms, and the abusers of these animals always get let off the hook, and the advocates are the ones who get charged. We saw this with the highly publicized case of Anita Kreintz, a member of Toronto Pig Save, who was charged in 2015 criminally for just offering water to thirsty pigs on their way to slaughter. So this double standard is now even more extreme with Bill 156, and Regan was there to expose abuse anyway and protest the bill. She gets killed, and the person who killed her gets off on lesser charges than she could have just for being there to document the abuse. So it's pretty absurd and uh, pretty messed up in all sorts of ways. Uh, Regan's family is calling for a coroner's inquest, into her death, which is typically used to uncover broader issues responsible for death. And in the case of Fearman's Pork, the slaughterhouse, they had for years refused to negotiate a safety agreement with the Animal Safe Movement to allow for safe and peaceful protests. Now, if the slaughterhouse had engaged with Animal Safe to negotiate these safety protocols, Regan might still be with us. 
So if you are disturbed by Regan's violent death and the prejudice evident in our so-called justice system, you can honor Regan by adopting some of that compassion that she literally died fighting for and swapping animal-based products for plant-based ones. Regan wouldn't have had to protest that day if not for the animal abuse taking place. And the abuse only continues because regular people keep funding it with their grocery dollars. And as you're hearing on this show today, we have ever more compassionate animal-free options that we can choose from. Thank you for that news, Sinead. You are listening to Animal Voices on 100.5 FM CFRO in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Some people don't eat turkey, so what do they do? On Thanksgiving, they eat turkey, but it's made of tofu. Tofurkey's not a turkey, it doesn't run or fly. It looks a little mushy, doesn't have a turkey tushy, but I'll give it a try. Tofurkey goes wobble, 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 knock, gobble, gobble. For our feature interview today, we have the incredible Seth Tibbet on the show. Seth is based in Washington State and is the founder and chairman of the Tofurkey Company, having started the business in 1980. One thing that makes his story unique is that he came from a background of no business acumen. He was just a self-described idealistic hippie who lived in a treehouse and had the idea of bringing healthy, eco-friendly, tasty plant-based protein to the world. Nearly 40 years and many mistakes later, using his unconventional approach to business paired with his faith in his products and a deep belief in environmental causes, he has transformed the $2,500 startup into a family-owned global brand worth over $100 million. Seth has recently published an incredible storytelling book called In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool. In this interview, Seth will tell us about his now 40-year journey of having a dream to feed the people with plant-based meat alternatives and pushing through to achieve that goal and more than he had ever imagined. Seth is a pioneer in paving the way for the vegan food industry, which now provides so many options and he has much knowledge to share. The Tofurkey Company now makes 43 products, all vegan, and sells them on six continents and in more than 27,000 stores around the world. Hello, Seth, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Hey, Allison. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show this week to both commemorate and inspire the work of ethical vegans like yourself who have dove into the business world to create delicious plant-based foods to feed a shifting society that has now come to crave and demand these meat-like products. Everyone knows Tofurkey. It has been celebrated and enjoyed worldwide by millions of people, including myself. And you have an amazing story to tell about your three-decade plus journey to success. 
Thank you for writing your book about it. It's been quite a page turner for me, and I highly recommend reading In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, which is your life and business memoir for anyone who loves a compelling story, and especially for business owners who are trying to realize a dream of doing good for the world while also making a living. So any business journey starts at the beginning because it is childhood that starts to mold us as people. And with that, our work habits, our ethics, and our desires in the world. We have a long way to go here. So I wonder if you could briefly speak about what life was like for you as a child and young adult in the 1950s to 70s that developed you as a person who had specific ideas about what he wanted to achieve in the world. This is quite a unique beginning. Maybe that's because you were raised by penguins, actually. So please do share. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I say raised by penguins, I want to say that the reason that I say that is that my dad was a artist. He, He worked for the federal government. And growing up, I always saw him out on the porch drawing these cartoons. He was quite an artist. He had become an artist from being trained by his mother, who was quite an artist. And his icon was the penguin. And he drew these incredible Christmas cards every year and painted them in by hand. And they were always of the penguins interacting with the family. He drew caricatures of the family and penguins. And this was humorous. The penguins were always saying snarky things to the family and funny things and people love to get them the cards and being on his christmas list was a real honor and people would really write during the year and say i'm not i'm still on your christmas list right so just his humor and the way he used it painting these penguin cards really had an impression on me and his creativity and always encouraging me to write and think outside the box was really a very impressive time for me. And my mom was great too. She was just always so positive and people friendly, like a people person and just instilled in me hard work because she was a hard worker and my dad was a hard worker, but they were also very positive and friendly people. So I think I got my positive from my mom and optimistic outlook and my uh, sense of creativity from my dad and from the penguins. So penguins helped raise me. That's awesome. You've always lived a very frugal life. That resonates with me because I do as well, but definitely not as much as you did. <laughs> and and I feel like that was that definitely played a part in your success in the future. It sort of molded you into the type of person too, who was maybe humble for what you had and, and grateful for what you did have when you spent all those years starting your company. You also carved this way of life when you were young, where you decided that you didn't want to a regular job, you wanted to become an environmental naturalist and you figured there was enough income or jobs to go around to do that for about six months of the year, which was fine with you. And then you'd have the other six months to explore and travel. So can you tell us a little about that and sort of how your travels maybe brought you to number one, outside of your travels, must note that you built a treehouse to live in. That's not very common. (laughs) And then number two, how you came to discover things in the world like Tempe. Right. 
So after I graduated from high school in Maryland, I left home and went to Ohio for college at Wittenberg University in Southern Ohio, in Springfield, Ohio. And that was a real turning point for me. I had been raised on the East Coast in an urban environment, and Ohio just opened my eyes to the beautiful Midwest and broader landscapes and natural history. I started studying elementary education when I had to declare a major, and it just wasn't really fitting in with me 100%, but I had to pick some major, so I chose that because I loved kids. What I realized when I went into student teach in some of these schools in the Springfield, Ohio area, they were still hitting kids with corporal punishment over there for like missing spelling words and acting out of order or being outside the box thinkers. It wasn't like they were even being disciplined for misbehaving. It was just, like I said, for some academic shortfalls. And I was like, this is doesn't feel right. So they put me in a class with a teacher to student teach, and she was a hitter. And I was just like, I can't do this. And I went to my advisor and he was like, well, sorry, this is, what do you say? Love it or leave it. And I said, I'll choose, leave it. And so I dropped out of college and ended up teaching natural history to these sixth graders at Antioch College who had a outdoor education center that was about 10 miles from where I was living. And I wasn't a naturalist, but for some reason, they believed in me and let me intern with them. And it was just like the natural world just opened up to me. And I just realized that I had this innate love of plants and animals. And more than that, teaching kids who were really inspired to be out there, that they were loved by the teachers, they weren't being hit or mistreated. And it really showed in the whole atmosphere of the camp. So that was really great. And about that time, I read a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. And most of the other naturalists were vegetarians at that time, too, at this camp I was working at. So I had this little community of support for being a vegetarian. And aside from camp, I was a vegetarian. I wasn't eating meat, but I was a terrible vegetarian. I was eating vanilla wafers and chips and no meat, but no real good nutritional food anyways, because, you know, back then there really wasn't a lot of information about the health aspects of the vegetarian diet. There were no meta studies. Francis Moore LePay was saying, from an environmental standpoint, meat is a very poor inefficient way to make protein. You take 16 pounds of grains and you put them into this animal and you slaughter this animal and you only get like a small one pound or less in return. And I was like, that's a terrible waste. Like there's 16 pounds of grains going to waste here, which you could be feeding directly for people. So I started trying to experiment with her recipes of eating grains directly instead of through animals, because I was a meat eater growing up. My parents were not vegetarians. I mean, I was eating meat and 
potatoes, sort of standard American diet. But it was a real revelation to me. And I was making soy grit burgers, which were just ground up soybeans mashed together with flour. They tasted bad, but they digested worse. They were really not so good. And a couple of years after getting out of college, I ended up at the farm in Tennessee, which was this commune of 1,600 acres, and they had 1,200 hippies living on there, and they were complete vegetarians. They called themselves pure vegetarians, which today we would call them vegans. And it was there that I first discovered the wonderful, incredible product tempeh, which was a fermented soy product from Indonesia. And I just couldn't believe how tasty that was compared to these crummy (laughs) soy grit burgers that I was making. And you know what was great about them? Not only did they taste good, this tempeh, but it digested well. And I was like, whoa, this is incredible. A tasty, digestible protein that is going to make me healthy and strong and able to do what needs to be done. So that was 1977 that I made my first batch of tempeh. Did you know at that time the benefits of the probiotics and the fermentation? And can you explain that to our listeners? I had read a little bit about the probiotic aspects of tempeh simply because the way that Americans and North Americans found out about tempeh was researchers studied first started studying tempeh in Indonesia during World War II when the Dutch people were rounded up and put into concentration camps over there. But the concentration camps that had access to making tempeh had way lower amounts of dysentery than the ones that, and a higher survival rate than the ones that didn't have tempeh. So that was the first clue that I had that this was something that was very nutritional. And I started reading the book of tempeh by Bill Shirtliff, and he mentioned in there that tempeh, because it predigests the proteins and enzymes in the soybean, even people that struggle with digestive problems, like there's people that can't tolerate soy, they can eat the tempeh because of the fermentation and what it does to the starches and proteins and breaks them down into making this protein one of the most easily assimilated proteins known to people. And so that is the secret of tempeh. And I've always loved tempeh for that reason. I had some for dinner last night and a little stir fry. It was amazing. So I'm still a big fan of tempeh, even though we're known more to tofurkey. But I think it's a true superfood and one of the best things you can put in your body. Quick question for you, uh, because I've had a lot of tempeh on my mind from reading your book. <laughs> um, yeah, So good. I have two, two or three slabs of it in my freezer. I uh, So I thought last night, well, I better make some, because um, in preparation of this interview, it's been a long time since I've had tempeh. Question, it stays in the freezer, and on the package, it just says cut into cubes and marinate it and cook it. Are you supposed to defreeze it or not? Uh, yeah, tempeh freezes very well. Well, it was so. it was in the freezer to, to begin with because that's how you buy it from the store. So I put it in my freezer. 
but yeah, to cook. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then I would take it out. You know, tempeh should last for a week or two in the refrigerator. Oh, okay. Um, depending on whether it was vacuum sealed or not. But conservatively, you could get two weeks out of tempeh in your refrigerator. So what I would do is I would take it out of the freezer and I'd put it in the refrigerator two or three days before I plan to use it. And here's the secret. Tempeh is different than tofu. You know, tofu has been in this country, uh, in North America, since the early 1900s. And tempeh just started in the 1970s commercially. So because people got used to cooking tofu, they often cook tempeh like tofu. And here's the problem. Tofu you can eat raw, and I love tofu raw, and so people cut it into these one-inch by one-inch by one-inch cubes, and they stir-fry it, and it's great. Tempeh really is a more dense protein, so what you Mm -hmm. need to do, don't cut it into those big cubes. Cut it into quarter-inch slices or so, very thin slices uh, about the width of a popsicle stick or a little bit thicker. And then I like to marinate it in just some soy sauce, water, garlic, maybe a little ginger, maybe a little sesame oil. And then I just brown it in the pan, saute it lightly. The Indonesians do that too. They cut it into these real tiny, small strips. Like, you know what potato sticks are? No, but I can imagine sticks of potato. (laughs) Well, they're very thin, like kind of toothpick. Okay. Like wow, a little we, don't bit, have, not, we don't have those here in Canada. <laughs> oh, well, we're we're very big on snack junk food here. <laughs> so we are too, but I know there's way more varieties in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, they deep fry in these woks the tempeh after cutting them into these thin little strips, and they make this thing called sambal goreng tempeh, where they put peanuts and soy sauce, and a little bit of sugar. Not like we use sugar, like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to put a tablespoon of this in here. They just use it as a spice more. But they have chili and onion, and then they they deep fry it in this wok. And at that point, it's shelf stable. So they just put it in jars because not everybody in Indonesia has refrigerators and it's very hot there. So it's in a jar. They just snack on it or throw it on top of rice for a quick meal. And it's unbelievable. It's so good. It's like a, I call it a, a tempeh beer nut, the sambal goreng tempeh. And at tofurki.com, I, there's still recipes for tempeh and sambal goreng tempeh, but you can find it online. But it's really, a wonderful treat, but just cooking it, make sure you have the tempeh in small, thin slices so it absorbs the flavors and doesn't get raw in the middle. Because I don't think raw tempeh, there's people that eat raw tempeh, but, and you can do it, but you have to be pretty hearty. Yeah, I would think (laughs) so. To have a really strong gut to process that probably. So I'm here with Seth Tibbet, the founder of the Tofurky Company, which is known worldwide. But before you had the Tofurky Company, what basically brought you into this 40-year journey was that we were talking about discovering the wonders of tempeh, which is a fermented soybean product, aka moldy soybeans. That's what they are. 
And this brought you, you thought the world had to see tempeh and and you wanted to bring tempeh to the masses. You thought it would be the next granola because granola was starting to get really popular back then. I guess this was like in the late 1970s. And then in 1980, you decided to start your business of selling tempeh uh, officially through a business name. You called yourself Turtle Island Soy Dairy. So I wonder if you can speak about the ethics and the mission that you brought into starting this company and why you did start this company. Yeah. So I started making tempeh professionally in December of 1980. And the whole idea was based on Francis Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, where we were talking about eating grains and beans directly, which meant eating low on the food chain, which is eating these beans and grains directly. So that was my mission, was to have this low on the food chain, eco-environmental food, because I was had been an eight-year career at that point after graduating from college in 1974. I had a six-and-a-half-year career as a wandering naturalist. And so it was really an environmental ethic that drove me to do this. But it was also a time when Ronald Reagan had just come into the White House and he was not a fan of environmental anything. And so a lot of these, the money that was going to fund these jobs that I was being paid for as a naturalist suddenly was drying up. So I needed something else to do to support myself. So that was the other goal was I wanted to make $1,000 a month as a a pay. Like if I could make $1,000 a month, I said that would be a dream because for the last six years or so, I had been averaging two or $300 a month and living off of that and doing the naturalist gig and I would save up money and During the winter, I would travel to Mexico and hitchhike around the south looking at birds, looking for the ivory-billed woodpecker that was supposedly extinct. So, And then I'd sleep on people's floors and couches, and, you know, I was uh, kind of a, a beatnik guy, I guess. And I was really not into making money, but I, I wanted to support myself, and from going to the farm commune, which was led by this spiritual guy, Stephen, he always talked about doing something important and saving the world and doing something important that is not going to dry up when the times get tough. And voila, talk about tough times. We're in tough times now, and yet the food is still a necessity and viewed as an essential business. So Tofurky has been fine during the COVID times in terms of orders and business. And he was right in saying, pick something that is essential to people that isn't like a fringe idea when people don't have money suddenly and, and times are tough. They're not, you're, you're going to be out of business too. So I wanted to support myself by doing a right livelihood sort of business. And that's what I started on $2,500 of savings from my natural history career of eight years. 
not a lot of money to save up in eight years, but it was enough to get it going. Well, it was the 1970s. I couldn't quite grasp if that was good or not. So, yeah. I mean, uh, you were talking about how minimum wage was like $3.50 an hour, something like that. It's funny right. that all these many years later, it's actually not much more uh, ahead of that. It's kind of, kind of no, silly. No, it hasn't risen yeah. like, has it? It hasn't risen the, proportionately. Uh, proportionately. Yeah. So you wanted to give people a better alternative for protein by also following your passion and, and just not living inside this box job, which you just didn't see for you. So you started the Turtle Island soy dairy. So can you explain what is a soy dairy and how does it differ from a regular dairy? Yeah. So back in the late 70s, there was this concept of soy dairies and soy delis and a soy dairy was just a vegan dairy it was going to make products out of soybeans that normally would be found in the milk and cheese uh, case although interestingly enough you know it, back then soy milk was not a big thing like plant-based milks were even lower than meat alternatives in terms of what you could find in the supermarket. I mean, if you went to a tofu manufacturer, maybe you could get this pretty awful tasting soy milk, but there was no cheese, there was no yogurt, there was none of this. So it's a great question why we would call this a dairy. And I stuck with that name for most of the 70s, but when we incorporated, we changed it to Turtle Island Foods just to incorporate a larger swath because we looked at it. We're not making milk or, or cheese. We should have, but back then the technology was just getting going. I remember going into a store to deliver tempeh and this guy was talking about this new almond milk. And I was like, almond milk, that's crazy. Like you're making milk out of almonds? Yeah, and you're just milking I, I had, them. I know it. <laughs> I had never thought of that before. And then the cheese was just starting then, too, in the 90s. You know what our joke was about cheese? No, I don't. <laughs> Please tell me. The joke was, hey, did you hear about the fire in the vegan cheese factory? The cheese was still perfect the next day. It didn't melt at all. Everything burned around it, but the cheese never melted because the cheese, the vegan cheese would oh, not melt. The, oh, yeah. Vegan cheese never melted back then. Trust me. I remember. I'm, I'm old enough to remember those days. <laughs> That's so yeah, funny. That is so funny. That, oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, your, your local Vancouver company, Daya, kind of changed that. They did. They they now, sort of paved the way for melting cheese, and now everyone's doing it because you just have to, simply. Exactly. So it's a different world than it was back in the 70s. But even back then, living on $300 a month wasn't so good, and uh, it was tight to live on that kind of money. But we were more of a tempeh company. We were just making tempeh. We weren't making tofu. We weren't making soy milk. We were only making tempeh. So why we called it a soy dairy is a great question that I probably can't answer other than it sounded good <laughs> to us. <laughs> well, I guess I just sort of wanted to show the stark differences between what 
a factory that's making products from animals is rather than a factory that's hulling soybeans, basically. Right. Like maybe you can speak on the process of and how it affects the environment of basically your milking soybeans or your hulling right. them, as you mentioned, regarding all the inputs and resources and animal lives that are put into creating an animal-based product. Yeah, you know, in 1980, by the way, was the first year for Turtle Island Soy Dairy, but it was also the first year for Whole Foods, was founded in 1980, and PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, was also founded in 1980. You know, there wasn't this sense in 1970, you know, it was still undercover, the abuse and the horrible conditions that farm animals were being treated like. So, you know, the internet wasn't around. There weren't YouTube videos of these horrible practices being exposed. And I remember even reading this book called Living Lightly. It was all about making your own clothes and eating healthy, good food. And in the book, it said, oh yeah, it's okay to eat like milk and cheese because these are made from products that animals give us painlessly. Mm, how, so how so far from the truth? Exactly. I mean, so the dairy industry then was thought of, of people thought, oh, there's this old beloved cow that lives out in the backyard and you go out and you milk it and she's so happy. And, you know, they didn't really talk about stealing the baby's milk and slaughtering the cow after basically raping it for two years and being pregnant. So anyways, it was it was a very different time from the ethical standpoint. It was more of the environmental ethics that drove me and others to start businesses back then, as opposed to the healthy aspects of the product although there was some of that starting to crop up and the but it was mostly an environmental play right so again this was 1980 that you started turtle island soy dairy in a north american society that largely did not embrace a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle because much more than today even everyone ate a heavy meat dairy and egg laden diet and now there are definitely some parts of your book that made me laugh quite a bit because you're a very humorous person, Seth Tibbet. And oh, but I absolutely belly laughed and it wasn't even something that you said you were quoting. This is a pivotal point in your story when your aunt Rosie tried to give you advice about your new business endeavor. Okay, I'm going to try to do this without laughing. <laughs> she said to you, Seth, selling soybean food to the American public is a bad idea. Nobody wants to eat soybeans, and especially not moldy ones. This is a meat-eating country, and it will always be a meat-eating country. So Aunt Rosie gave you very sage advice, but you didn't follow it. What was your response to these straightforward points that she spelled out? You were plunging headfirst into an unknown pond as there was next to no market for plant-based proteins at this time. You were losing money year after year, although your sales were increasing, you just couldn't get a profit. And what kept you powering through for many years to make your business a success? And what is your advice for fellow citizens who want to create a life-meaningful business without knowing 
saying the first thing about business. There's a whole lot in there. Just touch on what you would like, please. Yeah. Well, Aunt Rosie was a fiery redhead that really spoke her mind. And I appreciated that, you know, because she was trying to help. She told me that two weeks after I had started the business, you know, which is a very tender time because you're still trying to convince yourself (laughs) that this is a good idea to invest money and your life into this idea. And here she was telling me that it was a bad idea. But I had already grown used to the Midwestern attitude. This was, she lived in Minnesota and I realized that she had somewhat of a conservative viewpoint and wasn't on the cutting edge of food and didn't know this, what I had known. So I still had faith in the idea. Although for about nine years afterwards, when it was very slow going and tough sledding, you know, there was grains of truth in what she was saying. Like I was really kind of failing as a businessman. I mean, I was only paying myself and my two or three workers very less than survival wages, really. It wasn't like we were succeeding and laughing our way to the bank or anything. So it was advice that uh, was meant in a good way to steer me. But you know that when you're starting a business you do need to have the vision and actually i think it's often a good sign when people try and talk you out of something or they say wow that's a crazy idea because it's means that this is an original idea and you should expect flack for it because if you have an idea that people say, oh, what a great idea. Why hasn't anybody done that? That That's good. Maybe somebody else is doing that or soon will. And these good ideas, you know, like in 1991, after living in the tree for, in my treehouse for all these years, I started to write this treehouse book. And everywhere I went, it was like, oh, this is a great idea. Why is there no treehouse book? And not too long into it that I found out, you know what, there's another guy doing a treehouse book too. So sometimes the weird ideas are the good ones to steer by. But in terms of, you know, businesses starting out and vegan businesses in particular that are starting out, I think you really need to have the mission at your heart, you know, because the mission Every vegan business that I know has a mission, and that's from the smallest little tempeh maker at a farm stand or granola maker selling their goods at a farm stand, all the way up to the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger and these guys that are have done these big, huge plays, and they've gotten millions and millions of dollars of investment. They're they're doing this out of a, the mission is in their DNA too. It's in the mission is in every vegan business has some part of their DNA as a mission. And the thing about mission is the mission is always there for you. It's exciting to see growth because you see even small growth, you know, you're getting into one new store. That's like a whole nother sect of people that you're going to be affecting. And that's exciting. And the most important thing about business 
is staying in business and learning from business because in the book I talk about, you know, becoming less stupid. And that's what it is when you start a business. You know, when I started that business, I was so stupid and I have proof of how stupid I was. I know you gave a lot of that proof in the book. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm still (laughs) stupid. But, you know, it's just I'm less stupid than I was 40 years ago. And that's the trick. Because just turning the key every morning and every day that you stay in business, you're hanging around, you're hanging around, you're learning, you're getting closer and closer to finding a way to stay in business. So without the mission, you know, for me, five years in, after living on nuts and berries and pennies and $300 a month, you would think, okay, I'm a failure. I need to go somewhere else to find money. But I stayed in it because I had the mission. And that's the whole secret to business is staying in business because you become less stupid. And the mission will keep you going till you find your Tofurky moment. Exactly. And then I want to point out too, like there were points along this journey where you had people who wanted to partner up with you or pay you 25000 to buy you out basically. And, and you actually, you thought about it and, and you actually turned those offers down because it, I guess it didn't align with your mission and what you wanted in life. So I guess that's a lesson for business owners as well is to be really clear on what it is you want for your company. And if you're willing to have outside investors, that means it's it's no longer it's going to be less of your company, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, although you know, see, Tofurky grew during a time when the market was still getting ready. In 1980, you know, there wasn't really a meat alternative market in the supermarkets, so our whole business model was built uh, around this market that was growing incrementally, and now it's growing exponentially. So there's a bigger play here. So I don't fault people for selling their equity. I mean, I'm all about, you know, we haven't sold any of our equity yet to anybody outside the family, but we're having conversations now, like how do we keep up? Because we're going up against the Impossible Burger and these guys that have more money than God. And it's, a different time now. So, and there is money. Nobody wanted to give me money. There was no Kickstarter 1980. There was was nothing, (laughs) no internet, no uh, Dragon's Den. It's what we have here in Canada. Can't remember what it's called in the States, but Shark Shark Tank, right? There is nothing, nothing for you. And you still persevered. Like that's like part of the greatness of your story is that you started this in 1980 when there was barely a fax machine. Like, Well, there wasn't a fax machine, you know, on order day, I used to sit at my desk waiting for the phone Phone call for like eight hours. And I had like five distributors and, you know, it would get to be like four o'clock. If I hadn't heard from one, I'd do the call of shame and I'd call them up. Uh, do you have any, you want any tempeh this week? I mean, it was really pathetic. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, I couldn't even go to the bathroom because I I didn't want to miss the phone call. We didn't have an answering machine. We didn't have a fax machine. Didn't Mm -hmm. have internet. It was just like, they'd call up and I'd take, I'd write down their order and I'd make it happen. But it was also easier to place the products. You know, I'd go into stores 
And I'd say, hey, I've got these three tempeh products. And they're like, we'll take them. Do you have any other products? Because cool. we're trying to fill up our shelf. So well, there was good. pluses and minuses about it. Yeah. But the point is that equity is one way to grow. There's debt financing ways of growing through borrowing money, which is what we did, and not selling any equity. And then there's the equity play too. So you got to look at what's your dream and what are your goals. If you don't do a certain level of business right now, if it, like you, let's say you have a great new product and you know, you're just growing it step by step. That's, that's good. But you're also letting other people that could possibly make the same product that are selling equity and that have more money than you and that they might take the shelf space away from you. So there's more risk now mm -hmm. to doing the Tofurky way than there was back then. And the mm -hmm. industry was smaller and more genteel, but yeah. now it's, it's a different world. So that, that's a good uh, point to consider. And it's true. Like I, I actually as a long time vegan and being vegetarian since 1994 when there wasn't really anything. Eve's veggie cuisine local. Yes, that was Eve's. basically it. That was basically all we had. And I, I can tell you it's with delight that when I pretty much every time I go to a Whole Foods or a supermarket, I find new vegan products and it's pretty cool. Like it's actually now like, which ones do I try? And I love trying all the meats because that's what I'm into. I'm a gourmand for, for veggie meat. So here we Me are. Too. Oh, I know. I know. So, okay. So you were bootstrapping for many years, many years of hard work, making the tempeh business happened and there was continued demand, but it was so difficult because you were the sole proprietor with only 24 hours a day and limited finances to scale the business as you needed. Then 1992 came, the year your son was born, and then 1995, and that was the year of the Tofurky, we shall call it. Please tell us how Tofurky, the vegetarian holiday feast, came to be. Yeah, so I was always looking for something to eat at Thanksgiving as a longtime vegetarian, flexo-vegan, veganish person, and we tried many different recipes. I'd go up to this cabin up in the mountains where my other wandering naturalist friends and I would have this fabulous Thanksgiving. And there were a lot of vegetarians among us. So we were always experimenting with stuff and we never hit on the right thing. And I just was looking and looking and looking for something to eat other than salad or a unedible concoction that we had made up. And there were many. Um, or And there were also, these things took forever to make too. There were like I remember looking in Vegetarian Times magazine and their Thanksgiving alternative to turkey took up three pages of small print, like, and it was like this whole process. So I was looking for something convenient that would be bomb-proof and delicious. And my friend Hans Robel, who's the founder of the Higher Taste Portland-based deli, he in 1994 was making this incredible stuffed tofu roast and he was going to sell it to about 30 or 40 of his main customers for $50. You got this five pound stuffed tofu roast and a little tub gravy. 
Pardon me? It was really good, and it was refrigerated, so I bought it, and I liked it, and I, I had always liked the name Tofurky because in 1981, when I was driving all around Portland in my little station wagon delivering tempeh, there was a Tofurky sandwich out there, and it was just a baked tofu and some mayonnaise, uh, didn't have veginase then, on some good bread, and I would eat that for lunch often, and it was pretty good, and I, I liked the name, so I didn't invent the name, but they stopped making that several years later, and in 1995, I was like, well, Hans, why don't you make this? I'll make some tempeh drumsticks, and we'll call it Tofurky, and everybody was skeptical. All of my partners were like, Tofurky, that's a funny, stupid name. Like, But I had been trying to play it straight. I had been trying to be this businessman that I wasn't for so many years. It was kind of inauthentic and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I was like, well, you know, nuts to that. I'm just going to try and be who I am and, you know, just have some fun with this and see what happens. Because I think people like to laugh and they like fun and they remember funny stories and a funny name. So against everybody's uh, advice, I named it Tofurky and I bought the roast from Hans and the gravy and we made the drumettes and we put it out into stores. It was $30 for one stuffed tofu roast in the stores, 30 to $34. By today's money, that would probably be like a hundred dollars. Oh, um, wow. I wasn't even thinking that. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Would you buy a Thanksgiving dinner for a hundred dollars? Uh, these days I wouldn't. I mean, even buying a vegan roast such as yours, they actually go on sale for nine ninety nine during the holidays. Yeah, so, yeah, which yeah. is like soup. I mean, I, I was buying them before when they were like $25. Like people will buy them at that price point in this day and age, but right. wow. And you were still, you were still selling out Yeah, and not so covering your costs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was an expensive thing. It wasn't like we were selling them at that price to make a lot of money. We were doing it because it was a very laborious process to make this, you know, especially the tofu roast, which you ground up the tofu and you put it, you lined a colander with cheesecloth and then you put the tofu in there and you pounded a hole in the middle with your fist and you put stuffing in there and flipped it out onto a baking sheet and basted it and baked it. I yeah. mean, it was like five or six bucks just to make the roast. It's interesting because you're describing the type of roast. I think that's might've been the one in the vegetarian times. That's what I, I made once. And I, you know, when you're like, you crumble the tofu and you make it into like a turkey right. shape in the colander. That's I, I've made, I used to experiment making my own roasts too back, back, back in the day, maybe when yours wasn't around. Yeah, because I've definitely been vegetarian since before Tofurky. But to I, I want to tell you, like, all the vegans in my community who I know, like, we love being able. We have a Vancouver Vegans Facebook group of thousands of people. And there's always activity on there. It's like, where can I get a roast? And there's, there's like, different ones available now, right? So there's more yeah, options. Sure. But it's hard to find them, too, because they sell out. So, like, oh, I saw this roast at, I saw Tofurky at Whole Foods. Everyone runs and goes and grabs them before they're sold out 
That's what it's like. And that's what it was like for you in the first years. You kept selling and selling out. Yeah. So can you tell us about Tofurky, the vegetarian holiday roast and just the success of it and the feedback that you got from your customers and the consumers? Yeah. So back then in 1995, the internet was just getting started and email was just getting started, but only 32% of Americans had computers in their home right then. So there was the main way that you got a hold of a company was by calling them up. And especially if they had the 800 number, because God knows, like, it's going to be like a dollar or two a minute to call it up was back long then. distance, right? Yeah. You remember that? So we put in Every Tofurky feast that first year in 1995, we sold 800 of them. We put a self-addressed stamped postcard and we asked questions. How'd you like it? Was the texture good? How'd you like the drumettes? How'd you like the gravy? How'd you like the roast? And we got all of these postcards coming back. And what came out of it was people loved the concept, but they thought that the texture and the product could be better. And especially... You know, tofu, when you eat it fresh, it's like amazing. But when you freeze tofu, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever done that. It it really becomes spongy. So here was this tasty, spongy roast for 30 bucks. So we were hearing from people that, you know, oh, my God, I've been waiting 20 years for this product. I'm not a second class (laughs) citizen anymore. And people were driving, you know hundreds of miles to get a tofurkey, literally. And it was just this crazy time. And suddenly people were finding them in stores and they were dragging them on TV. They were showing up on TV like Hollywood starlets would bring them on. I think it was Christina Applegate brought one on the Jay Leno Tonight Show. Good for her. You know, it was just the Today Show was having them. And it was like this buzz. It was Mm -hmm. a remarkable product and people were making remarks about it. So we, we generated this viral buzz and talk about town of of this groundbreaking product. So it was really uh, incredible for this small company because we were still a small company. We had less than a dozen employees. We were growing and our tempeh business was doing well, but we still weren't really profitable. And I was still not making money. Like the big joke around here is that, you know, my wife, like they ask her, did he make you sign a prenup? And she goes, (laughs) prenup? He lived in a tree. I was making more money. I had a job. I had insurance. I had a house. You know, she had all of that. So she was like, I was the one that needed the prenup. And it was really true. But we were a small company. And then we had all of this media spotlight shine on us for two months, November and December. We we were the darlings of the media because everybody in the media, they always need a new take on the holidays, you know, because how are you going to tell the story of Thanksgiving and Christmas this year? Like what's new and what's exciting? So we were getting calls from all the New York Times and the Washington Post and all over the world. People were talking Tofurky and we were shipping Tofurky out to people in areas of the country that didn't have distribution yet. So it was an amazing time. And 
it was early on that it was a hit, but Thanksgiving would end, Christmas would end, and we would shrink back to our nobody selves and little regional tempeh maker. And that's when we started coming up with the Tofurky deli slices, the sausage. Yeah, those are both other... my favorite. Yeah. And, and I just want to tell you, the Italian tofurkey sausages, I would say, are in my top five of all vegan meats ever in my life. Oh, I probably good. have yeah. some in my refrigerator right now, and I have some deli slices in my refrigerator. Yeah, I had yeah. deli slice for lunch yesterday. I had the ham deli slice. Have you had the ham? That's my favorite. Now. Yeah, my favorite's the the black pepper. I love that. Oh, or love the, the or the hickory too. smoked. Oh, so good, so good. Yeah, well, yeah. those were big products for us because they continued the mm -hmm. tofurkey buzz yes. throughout the year, and that was where we first became kind of famous. And that's where it was 2001, I think, I was sitting in my office last week of December, and I'm just getting ready to go home, and the phone rings. And I go, am I going to answer this call, or should I just go home? Oh, I'll just answer the call. And I pick up the phone and I go, hello? And the other person goes, Seth, Seth. I go, Rosie, is that you? Oh, no. <laughs> and it was my Aunt Rosie calling and she was like, Seth, I have the great, greatest news. Yes. You were just on Jeopardy. You were, you were the answer. The $400 question was Thanksgiving Alternative by entrepreneur Seth Tivitt. And I was like, that's my nephew. And she was so <laughs> proud, you know. She knew the she answer. advice. But you know you've achieved success when your name is a Jeopardy question, right? Well... You know, I think, as my friends were to point out, you're no, you're nothing until you're the Daily Double. And this oh, was just well, it was just 400 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can work but up to that. It was exciting. That. No, that's such a great Yeah, show. you've been on The Simpsons as too, like Tofurky, so I consider that a big achievement as well. And also, also the butt of many jokes for late-night show hosts, which I think you'll yeah. agree that basically any publicity is good publicity. And during those years when Tofurky was coming out, people were coming to you, the media was coming to you, you didn't have to pay for any publicity and your sales just expanded and expanded and expanded until like 1998, you've made your first million dollars in that year, I believe, and you mm -hmm. finally turned a profit that year. And hopefully you were able to pay yourself a bit more than a thousand dollars a month. Not too much more than yeah. but, but wow. I did something. Yeah, yeah it just goes know. to show no. like and in the book too, just for new business owners out there, you know, Seth's book is really good because it really goes to show what all the expenses and unexpected expenses are in growing a business and all the challenges that will arise, right? So in the book, you say that plant-based foods challenge traditional paradigms like eating plant-based turkeys on Thanksgiving, which has now been achieved. You've also innovated to keep trying out new ideas. And as a result, you've created, as we mentioned, the very popular tofurkey deli slices, tofurkey sausages, and, uh, and I know you've got other products as well. We don't have as many here in Canada. People do definitely say that if they could eat food like this every day they would give up meat I've heard people say that myself like a lot and you've also received that feedback of course 
And the reality is now people can eat food like this every day. There's just no excuse not to. And it's because of your company and many others who have since surfaced and these delicious vegan meats can be purchased in all the supermarkets in North America, different continents as well, and most small stores as well. So I think these last five years or so have really been a turning point for the plant-based food industry, and I see it exploding. Since you've been there from the beginning and have paved the way for this growth, can you speak about shifting food culture and what plant-based alternatives for animal products can do to make the world a better place, and how have times changed when Aunt Rosie said Americans will always be a meat-eating country. Yeah, you know, it's breathtaking to see the change that's been going on in plant-based foods and in, in the diet of Americans. And the biggest category of customers for Tofurky are what we call the flexitarians or the meat reducers that are still eating a little bit of meat or they're transitioning to something. And that is like 30 or 40% of North Americans that are cutting back on their meat intake or eliminating entirely their uh, intake of animal-based meats. And there's so much more information now about the health aspect of the diet, the horrible way that animals are treated, and the environmental impacts of the diet. This is no longer like a fringe movement. This is really a movement that is so important for the survival of the species and the world, you know, from the climate change aspect, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic right now where that supposedly came from a wet market in China, you know, and 75% of all of these pandemics that have emerged in the past years are from animals. So I think that we are on the verge of a tipping point where the paradigm is going to completely shift. And we're going to see more and more people jumping on the plant-based protein bandwagon because you, you can get plant-based proteins of anything now. You get the yogurt and it's delicious. You get the milk, it's delicious. You get the meat, it's delicious. And so it's a very big challenge in the world and there's a lot more to do, but it's changing very quickly. You know, the refrigerated category of meat alternatives right now in the U.S. grocery market, you want to take a guess at what the growth rate is for 12 weeks that we're ending March 22nd of this year? I would say maybe a 30% growth. 30% growth would be incredible because... Yeah, it's probably too all, much because it's only three all months. Food, all food in a supermarket grows at 2%. Like, that's like yeah. everything. Okay. So 30% would be amazing. And in 2014 and 20 to 2017, it was an average of 5% for meat alternatives. Mm -hmm. It was 128% growth. What? 128% growth in 12 weeks ending March 22nd, 2020, compared to that same period in 2019. So it's just crazy. Like, even when it was 5%, the supermarkets were like, I got to get more of this in. This is growing at twice the amount of volume that my regular products are growing, that all food's growing. So they were like, we got to get more. This is a hot category. 
you know, when you get up to double digits of 30 and 40 percent, 50 percent, and then you hit like 100 something percent, it's just like that's when you really start paying attention. Yeah, that must mean they're they're giving more shelf space too, because they won't oh, yeah. be able to cram in all those meats in one one of those sections. Yeah, exactly. I want to see why that. Why wouldn't they give more shelf space? I mean, they do now to the people, the plant based milks. They have to. Oh, plant based milks are, are the hero. They're like thirteen or fourteen percent of all milk by dollar volume in supermarkets is plant based yes. now, which is a huge yes. number. For all that growth in plant-based meats, it's still around 1%, so there's so much more to do, but the growth is is there, and it's exciting to see and breathtaking to reflect back onto not only the 1980s when Tofurky first started, and there was nothing in the stores to now, but look at the 1970s and the 1960s and 1950s, and so when you look way back you know, you see, this is really remarkable growth that we're witnessing right now. So hooray for us, but, you know, it's the best thing we can do for the planet and for the animals and for your health is to go plant-based and go vegan. And we've got to do it, you know, it's survival depends on it. So let's get it done, huh? Exactly. So I would love also for you to speak on the importance of giving back to society as part of your business plan, and that is to support community. You have always done this from the start, probably before you even knew what a business plan was. Can you actually tell us, can you actually tell us what the Tofurky company's mission entails and how you strive to be a company that is very much about values and not about just turning a profit? Yeah, so the Tofurky Company is what's called a B Corp now, which is a benefit corp, which is an official program that goes in and it looks at all of your things, how you treat your employees, how you treat the community, what you do for nonprofits, and you get points for all of this. And B Corps are starting to rise up, you know, like Patagonia is a classic B Corp. Certain breweries that we work with, like that we buy, we we try and buy suppliers from that are B Corps. So we've always had that mission. We have the Tofurky Family Foundation, which gives money to local and national nonprofits. We also have a director of charitable giving that gives product and money to causes. You know, a lot of these nonprofits are like the unpaid marketing arm of Tofurky. They're out there trying to create the same world change that we are, you know, and they're doing it without really getting the salaries, you know, that the private sector can do. So they're doing it 100% for mission. But we see ourselves as, you know, a mission-based company and one that is just has as its goal making plant-based foods accessible, economical, and incredibly tasty for people to just survive on in health and harmony with the environment. So 
Yeah. You know, I, I had never really heard before about the certified B Corporation, but yeah, I was reading the values of, of that corporation entitlement entails, and I was very surprised to see that it actually fits so perfectly in alignment with the vegan ethic, as I'm sure you're aware. So number one, we must be the change we seek in the world. That's what Gandhi said. <laughs> That's what exactly. I always say. And businesses should aspire to do no harm and benefit all, which is the principle of ahimsa, which is also a vegan principle, right? Yeah, it's funny you should bring that up, you know, because I wanted to underscore that, that this is not a North American only phenomenon, you know, plant-based foods. This is a worldwide phenomenon. We get so many requests for products all over the world. I was over in India in July 2019 at a vegan conference over there. And, you know, they have, everybody thinks, Oh, India's all vegetarian, and there there is 28% of the country is Hindu, so they're vegetarian, but there's a lot of dairy that is eaten there. And India actually is also one of the big beef producers in the world. But the vegans over there are so loving and energized to, you know, take people to the next step beyond just the vegetarian to vegan. And Europe, like crazy, like London has the most vegan restaurants of any city in the world, 165. Prague has the most per capita vegan restaurants of any city in the world. You know, you see France coming alive. It used to be, I used to say, there's no vegan that's ever been to Paris that hasn't lost 10 pounds because there was nothing to eat. Now there's 73 restaurants in Paris, vegan restaurants. These are all vegan restaurants. This isn't ones that have like a vegan option somewhere on the bottom of their menu. This is like all vegan restaurants. Mexico City. How many vegan restaurants do you think Mexico City has? I don't know. I would say maybe 10, 5, 5. I don't know. 80. 80? What? They have 80. But it's also, isn't it the one of the largest cities in the world? So that's... Well, it is. I, I didn't realize still, that. I mean, I traveled all over Mexico in the 70s, and the only thing I could eat was beans and rice and tortillas. I know, and I know, I've been guacamole. there. Same. And now <laughs> they just have all these wonderful food trucks and vegan restaurants. And even and Mexico everything. City. It's, wow, that's, that's incredible. We sell to... Uh, Chile mm-hmm. and Costa Rica, Australia, huge vegan. Yeah. It's the number four vegan market. 26 million people. It's the size of Canada. Yeah, I, I, I wish think. I could go there again because in 2004, they didn't have that much. And my aunt there, she she saw me cooking tofu and she asked me if it was cheese. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they're on it now. And, uh, you know, Australia is really hot and happening with Mm -hmm. veganism, probably on the level of Canada almost. Mm -hmm. But it's great to see what's happening. And it's a worldwide phenomenon all over the world, you know, even in small places you'd never think of. Oh, yeah. Right now, you know, we're kind of stuck in our cities and our provinces and states. We can't go to the rest of the world, but you can go to your local supermarket and buy Tofurky products, right, Seth? Yes, <laughs> yeah. you can. Do you want to talk about the range of products that you do have? Because like I said, we don't have them all here. I, I had read where you have about 35 different products. What Actually, are they? Actually, 43 Wow, now. 43. Um, yeah, so... Um, we have the holiday products, which are we've talked about, the roast and the gravy and everything. 
and those are sold year-round. We also have deli slices, we have sausages, we have chicken. Uh, oh, yes. The chicken makes it up there. We do have uh, it here, that right. That is a really amazing product. I wanted to call it tofrickin' chicken, but I got <laughs> outvoted. <laughs> and uh, then we have cheesecake, we have pockets. You have we, cheesecake? Because I read about yeah. the cheesecake you had wanted to make in your book, and I was like, shoot, I wish they had made that. We don't have that yeah. here. Lucky. No, it'll, it's it'll just come. getting going. It's it called Mucho. Oh, I'm going to be one of your biggest customers. I just, nothing better than a vegan cheesecake that you can just pull out of the supermarket freezer and take home and eat. Oh, yeah. I know it. Mm -hmm. And then we also have had a product that we wanted to launch in March at a trade show, but the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. just as we were going to go to this trade show, and we decided not to go to the trade show. And then the trade show collapsed. This was Expo West. Oh, yeah. Anaheim, which is the biggest natural food Mm -hmm. trade show in the world. And we were all set. We were going to have a tofurkey booth and we were going to have a mucho booth for the cheesecake. And then we were introducing some vegan cheeses too. Um, What? Oh, I'm so excited. So now we had to delay that and we're going to relaunch those in September. So those are shreds and they're also... um, like cream cheeses and stuff. Okay, big question for our listeners in Canada. Everyone always wants to know, like, when are they coming out here? We usually have to wait at least a year. (laughs) Yeah, what we do for Canada and all export is we just send you the best of the best because you're worth the Mm -hmm. best. Well, we're worth worth your cheese. Yeah. And your cheesecakes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'd love to do that. We love Canada and the market, and we'll wander those up there as soon as they hit a certain point of production because we have to change our packaging and everything to, you know, to get everything. We don't want to be legal. Yeah, or illegal. Yeah, that's always a challenge is having having to comply with the the French writing and then the nutritional standards as well. So Field Roast, as you probably know, had to change their whole recipe for their sausages just so that it could be considered a viable protein source, which I... You know, yeah. we, we interviewed David Lee about that years ago. It was, I, I think, like such a fiasco. <laughs> but but he yeah. went through the hoops and he, he got it done. So finally, what advice would you have for fellow food-making enthusiasts to achieve success in the plant-based food industry here in the year 2020? And what lies ahead in this industry? I say the most important thing, like we've touched on, is just to... Take the time to do it right and to stay in business uh, until you figure it out, you know, just turning the key every day and realizing that it's a marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. You got to make the commitment for the long haul and keep your eyes on the prize, which is the mission. And, you know, being at the end of your career like me and looking back on it and feeling like, wow, this was a pretty good life to live. You know, it was fun to see it. it, It's great to be part of something that's bigger than yourself and that's bigger than just making money. You know, a life where all you've done is amassed all this money and you're got some fancy house in the Bahamas and a yacht or whatever is is 
at the end of the day, it's a pretty empty life if you're just after money. You know, do something that's important that isn't going to dry up when things get tough, and that is really providing a service for mankind and for the world at this juncture, which is really, I think, a statement for environmental products like vegan foods that that you can save. There's so much that we need to do right now and the planet. The planet's in needs us. So yeah. keep your eye on the prize, keep your eye on the mission and do something that is not just making money do something good for all of humanity. And part of your mantra is to treat people well, which I really, really appreciate. That's both your employees and your customers. And I really feel that that is a key to success in business. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. At the end of the day, you know, it's the people in the company that keep it successful and you want to be as good to people as you can. You know, we pay everybody's insurance, which is a crazy that we have to do that you know here we're the one country in the world that doesn't really take care of people so good so that's a good thing everybody has retirement accounts you know that we pay into and we're just trying to do the best job we can to make life enjoyable for the people because that's one of the benefits too i think of bootstrapping and you know having done every job. I've done every job at Tofurky. So I feel sorry for some of these people that are making the equity play and they've been making $100,000 or more since the day one. And they've never actually spent an hour on the production floor. I mean, I've spent days and weeks and months making Tofurky. I've been janitor. I've been everything. So it really builds up this empathy and you really know how hard the work really is. It's hard work making a vegan food product and you've got to really respect and try and do everything you can for the people that are doing that day after day. And yeah, so having empathy is good. Yeah, I agree totally. Just a couple more questions here. Hopefully this is this one's a fast one. Out of your 43 products that Tofurky sells, can you off the top of your head pick a favorite and tell our listeners and our viewers how you like to prepare it? Well, it's summer now. So what I'm eating the most of right now is we have our own version of the Beyond Burger called a plant-based burger, the Tofurky plant-based burger. And it is a really great product to throw on the grill. So I go out to the porch and I have this gas barbecue grill and I heat the grill up to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. I throw the burger on there for three minutes and 38 seconds one side, flip it mm -hmm. three minutes, 38 seconds on the other side. <laughs> yep. Got a stopwatch right here on my little gadget. And then I uh, take a bun and I, I put a the bun on the grill for approximately 45 seconds and get it just a little bit grilled. I put on a layer of veganaise. I put on mustard. I put on ketchup. I put on A1 steak sauce, which is vegan. Yes. And some lettuce. If I have tomato, I will put on a tomato and on a nice bun. It's just mwah. 
That sounds amazing. You have to send those to Canada, okay? Because now everyone wants to eat one. <laughs> yeah, they're a, they're a really good version of yeah. you know what, what that is. I, I really am fond of those. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm still a tempeh guy, and I love I know tempeh, and I actually still make tempeh at home here just to have fresh because fresh is just so mm -hmm. uh, good and you at, might you know, as well that's what you do <laughs> oh i know i love to make tempeh and i really recommend everybody that loves tempeh make tempeh at home because you will make the tempeh that is just next level like several levels better than anything you get in the store and there's good tempehs in the store but you know and and especially like uh, I think the noble bean you have up there is a Yeah, really I have good some in tempeh. my freezer right now. They gave me some this year. The one that I cooked last night was green cuisine you're probably familiar with. Like that's been like the only one yeah. usually that we can find here, but the noble beans out now too. So they have I yeah. think the one in my fridge it's either like a it's a three grain or a five grain or something like that. So I'm nice. interested in trying that out because you tempeh makers have sort of innovated by putting in different yeah. grains, not just the soybeans. I'll send you this. How about this? And you can post it if you can sure. or share it, whatever. Uh, there's a, I have a good recipe for tequila tempeh where you marinate it in tequila and lime juice and chili and then you can shish kebab that or throw it on the grill, and it is just mind-blowing good. It's a good way to be It tempe. does sound good. So you're, you're barbecuing these days. That's good, but I understand, too, like you say you're trying to retire, but it's not going very well. It's hard to leave your <laughs> baby of 40 years, isn't it? Yes and no. You know, I mean, I was really fortunate to have – uh, stepson Jamie, who is just like very talented and sharp, and has done a great job continuing the dream on and doing stuff I couldn't do, you know. Because at a point, founders flounder, and it's good to to learn when it is to fire yourself, you know. And that's a theme that comes in the book too: mm -hmm. is just firing yourself from sales or marketing, and letting somebody else that just is focused on that. And Jamie's been good at that, but you know, it'll always be a special place in my heart and everything for what it's done. But I don't want to hold on. You don't want to hold on too long. You know, there's comes a point where, like right now, I'm. I just feel liberated. You know, Tofurky is a fully launched spaceship at this point, and it doesn't need me, you know, tinkering along for much. I mean, I still tell the stories and I'm on R&D and different committees, but it, it's freed me up to be like a cheerleader for the whole plant-based movement because that's what I'm wanting to see. And, you know, I love to see these new brands come in because they bring new energy to the category and it's you know, we're 1% of meat. We've got a long way to go. And that's a bigger job than any one brand. You know, we need all these brands. We need everybody on deck so to make this future viable and happy. So I just feel so lucky to be at this point of life and looking back on a life well lived and doing something meaningful in a small way, been a part of this amazing thing that's going on in the world right now and is going to continue long after I'm gone. And, you know, it's it's a pleasure to be there and to meet people like yourself that have trailblazed in Canada and gotten the word out for so many good things. 
Yeah, so thank you so much, Seth Tibbet, founder of the Tofurky Company, for coming on the show today to share your outstanding and inspirational story of creating a viable business from the ground up, which is now feeding millions of people plant-based meat like products that are loved around the world remember you can find tofurkey holiday roasts deli slices sausages tempeh and more in 27,000 stores and on six continents please do try them out if you haven't already especially if you're a meat eater or a new vegan who loves the texture taste and culture of animal flesh meats but this is much better because no animals are being harmed in the making of tofurkey meats also for a great read for story lovers and business owners alike, I highly recommend Seth's new memoir book, In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool. Seth, I, I really hope to see you again one day. The last time was at the last year's Animal Rights Conference. Yes. I, I hope that comes up again because I love seeing you speak there and taking selfies with you. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know if I don't know if you remember, but years ago I asked you to make a video for my friend new, new vegan Chris, who was just starting out his veganism and was introduced to Tofurky around that time. And you made an inspirational little video for him, which he loved. And then I told him yesterday I was doing this interview, and he's like, "Oh, tell him, tell him I just love his products. I love his deli slices." That's what he said. So this is about three years later. He's still going at it. And part of the reason is because he has your wonderful products to support him along the way. Great. Well, say hi to Chris. Yeah, I will. And I wish you well in trying to retire. <laughs> Thank you so much for making your Tofurky products and bringing them into the world. They definitely make my food options enticing and delectable. Have a good summer, Seth, and stay safe. Thanks. I'm going to go have a grilled Tofurky beer brat lunch now with sauerkraut. Wow, lucky, <laughs> lucky. You've been listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Please join us for next week's show on Friday, July the 31st. We will be joined by Jen Rivera-Bell to speak about vegan parenting. And we will also have interviews about children's vegan books featuring Abiose Cole on writing his book, I Am Not Food, and Addie Rivera on illustrating Junebug. I'm looking forward to that. We here at the Animal Voices Show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. All of our podcasts are available on our website at animalvoices.org, and you can also listen to them at Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Also join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. To close the show today, we are playing another Tofurky-themed song, as there are several out there. This one is a spoof of the Beastie Boys song, Brass Monkey, and it's really old because it speaks of Tofurky Jerky, which I had totally forgotten about from the 90s. I used to love that stuff. Here's Tofurky by the Furky Boys. Stay tuned next for Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today, and remember to be kind to the animals.